If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read in a minute from Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13, but I just wanted to introduce myself first before we got into that. Um, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I'm new on staff here at Midtown. I've uh, been in town for a couple of weeks now, and uh, my primary responsibilities are with the 12 South uh, congregation, but it is a joy to be here uh, with you this evening. Um, I'm looking forward to sitting down with you and, and uh, in a more one-on-one or, or you know, one-on however many, um, sharing a little bit of the story of, of how uh, I ended up here and how um, uh, my family is in the process of transitioning back to uh, Nashville. We lived here for a couple of years, but uh, we'll get to that at another time. Um, I, I, I am married. I've been married for about uh, a little over 15 years, and we have four kids uh, a boy who's 10, and then three girls who are 8, 6, and 4, uh, and they're awesome. And so I'm looking forward to you meeting those, the, those people. Um, they, they're sort of the rest of my story, uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. I'm just so thankful to be here at Midtown. It really has been an amazing uh, work of God uh, in orchestrating Uh, the opportunity for me to be here in this place, and and I'm thankful to him for that. It it was, uh, it struck me funny that when we started to look at the preaching schedule and and where I would uh, begin uh, at 12 South and then then here as well, uh, my first two sermons that I'm giving uh, here are both sermons that are concluding series. Uh, So, you know, my first sermon is finishing up the Lord's Prayer series, and then a couple weeks from now, I'll finish up the Colossians uh, series. So it makes me kind of a closer, um, but uh, I'm excited to do that. And I love, uh, I really do appreciate the fact that uh, the guidance from, from Joel and Randy has been, uh, wasn't an invitation to just, hey, pick your favorite verse of the Bible and just go for it, um, but was to settle into where, where this church has been and where, where we've been looking at God's word over the course of time. I think that's a great thing, and so I'm thankful uh, to be wrapping up this series on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, so I'm going to be focused in on the verse, the last phrase or clause of the prayer that you find in the Bible, and that is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory that was added on later. It's certainly not an unbiblical sentiment, but it's, but it's not part of the prayer that Jesus uh, modeled in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we're going to be. For anybody who's, well, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say for anybody here, uh, you've heard this verse before, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you've grown up in the church, of course you've heard it, you've probably prayed it, many of you have probably memorized it, but even if you haven't, even if you didn't grow up anywhere near the church, through television, radio, friends, advertisements, you've seen some variation of this statement. It's familiar. It's a very familiar verse. And the trick with familiar passages of Scripture is not to read them as though, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's the Bible. That's Bible speak. I know already what that means. I don't even really need to pay attention because I know that this is just going to be a sermon on sin management. This is just going to be a message about how I need to modify my behavior 
so that it's more in line with the things that God says I'm supposed to do. Lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil is the straighten up and fly right part of the Lord's prayer. And from there we say, okay, I got it. I'm gonna tune out. But Jesus is never just about the surface of things, ever. He's never about that. He's always going deeper. He's always digging deeper. He's always rooting in to not just the stuff we do, but why we do it. And it's so right for him to do that. And the reason it's so right for him to do that is because nobody has simply a surface story. We have deep stories, motives, things that drive us, things that are underneath the reasons why we do the things that we do, even the destructive things that we do. What's happened in your life? You would say... I don't really think I would share it with anybody, but I can say that this is probably the most formative thing that's ever happened to me. It motivates a lot of the way I do relationships, a lot of the way I think about God, a lot of the way that I think about my own self-worth. What is it for you? I was in a small group. This church has a good small group ministry, connection, sharing our lives with each other. I was in a small group in another place there was a friend in that group. We were taking turns sharing our stories, telling the story of our lives, and he, uh, he, he was talking about when he was just a little child. You know, it was sort of a no rules sort of thing. Just tell us whatever you think is important. And uh, he said when he was three, he had a, a brother who was one, and uh, his brother was in his crib, and he was crying, and he wanted his brother to stop crying. And so it was a three-year-old he went to go make his brother stop crying. And I won't tell you what he did, but what he did almost killed his brother. And his parents caught him just in the nick of time. They saved his brother's life. And as he's telling us this story, he said, and then, to keep my brother safe, my parents put a lock on my bedroom door that it would lock from the outside. And they would lock me in at night. And then he added, until I was 13. And he was telling us this because he wanted deep, meaningful, healthy relationship. And he knew that that first decade of his life had shaped the way he did relationships. You may not have anything that awful. You may have something that's far worse. But we have all got that stuff. We've all got that stuff. And I believe when Jesus says, you know, when you're talking to God, when you're praying, say this, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That it's at that level and deeper that he means for us to go. Not just to behavior modification, but to that stuff. What has happened? Why do we do what we do to bring that before God? Because nobody has a simple story. It's why Philo of Alexandria said, be kind. Because everybody you meet is fighting a great battle. It's true. So we're going to read the text that surrounds the Lord's Prayer here in a minute, we're going to zero in on this last phrase. But I want to ask you, 
to ask the Lord to give you fresh ears if you're concerned that you're going to hear this in a familiar, same old kind of way. That you would ask the Lord to search your own heart because I believe that's a big part of what prayer is. It's what David prayed at the end of Psalm 139 when he concludes that beautiful psalm about being fearfully and wonderfully made. And he says, search me, God. Know my thoughts. Try me. Know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the way that is everlasting. That's what it is. Don't lead me into temptation, but lead me to you. You know the prayer. We read the prayer together, but I want to read what Jesus says right before it so that you can get a little bit of a context, a reminder of the context of how Jesus introduces this prayer. It's in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, and so he's instructing people on what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. And he gets on the topic of prayer, and he says this. Now listen to what he says. This is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners so that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So then pray like this, our Father. And that's how He sets up this prayer. And do you see what He's saying about prayer here, the one thing he's saying is that God is not some disgruntled, moody deity that only listens to the most eloquent and the most well-spoken and the best publicly preserved prayers. And neither is he distant or deaf or sleeping. Jesus says he sees you. He knows you. He knows what you need. And he loves you. And he loves you as a father is meant to love his own. For some of you, you have great examples of that. For some of you, you have less than great examples of that. But Jesus is saying the kind of father that he is is the heavenly kind. And he knows what you need. And he loves you. It's also beautiful because when Jesus says, don't heap up empty phrases, then we can know that what's about to follow, there are no empty phrases here. He's not wasting words. He's not saying, you know, this is add this and then add this and then add this. That's, that's not it. He says, don't heap up empty phrases, but, but pray with this kind of focus. There are no wasted words. They all matter. And if they all matter, then we ask the question, which is what we've been doing for the weeks we've been going through this study of this prayer. We ask the question, well, then what is the objective of this prayer? Why does this matter? 
Some might conclude that the reason it matters that we follow Jesus' model is because God is an authoritarian who's kind of particular and likes to be spoken to in certain ways. And if we don't follow this proper formula, it's going to offend him and he's not going to give us what we want. But that's not the Bible's picture of prayer. Prayer is communication. Communication is relational. And what Jesus is telling us, he's talking about the forging and the cultivation of a relationship with God. And this should stop us. Because what he's saying is, the God of all creation wants an audience with you. He hears you. He loves you. And he knows what you need. And we see where this prayer takes us and where it takes us, brothers and sisters, friends. It takes us to the end of ourselves is what it does. It takes us to this place where we see God as he truly is and ourselves as we truly are in his sight. And we say, God, everything I need, I come to you for. Let's review the prayer quickly. It's broken into two halves. The first half is really focused on God. That's what the first half of the Lord's Prayer is focused on. Who God is, the preeminence of God over everything. That's where it focuses. Jesus says, when you start, start like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise be your name. Holy be your name. He's showing us how to address God. He's saying he is on the one hand your Father. And he is also at the same time holy. And so Jesus is calling us to approach God as a child comes to a loving Father with affection and with respect, reverence. So with confident reverence might be a way to say that. And then we say, your kingdom come. Jesus is directing our hearts to consider the kingdom that we inhabit now and to long for everything that is broken to be put right. Then we say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of yielding saying, God, I want to see the world as you see it. I don't always see the world as you see it, but I want your will to prevail over mine. When I pray for his will to be done, I'm praying for his will to overrule my will when my will is in conflict with his will. That's the first half of the prayer, that we would have God in his right place as we come to him in our minds and in our hearts. Then we move on to the second part of the prayer, which is beautiful, it's Jesus saying, now we get to the petitions, the things that you ask God for in your personal life. And it's, and it's sweepingly comprehensive in just three little statements. Jesus summarizes everything you really need. And if you've ever felt guilty, some of you probably do, I do sometimes, feel guilty about asking God for things, like we're bothering him somehow, you know? I don't want to ask God for this because, you know, I'm always asking God for this. Incidentally, maybe the reason that we feel this way is because our parents made us feel guilty about asking for things. But that's, that's an aside. And I'm not trying to beat up parents. I'm, I'm wanting you to understand your own process here. But this is where we bring our petitions to the Lord. The very first one is the most basic, the physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. 
It's right for us to ask that, for God's ongoing attention to our physical needs. And from there then, we move on to praying, not just for our physical daily needs, but also for the health and the protection of our relationships with others, because we're relational people. We were made for relationship. We can't live outside of relationship. It's part of the fabric of who we are. It's part of how God made us. That's not an accident. That's not an effect of the fall. He made us for relationships. And so the very next part of the prayer is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And what we're asking for here is healthy fellowship. And in the very same breath, even as we're asking for healthy fellowship, is we're asking for restoration when those relationships are broken. And those relationships get broken. Let's just use me as an example, okay? We don't know each other. I'm new. And so the odds are pretty good that I haven't offended any of you yet. Maybe I have. It's okay. Maybe I have. I mean, I have been talking for 10 minutes. But here's the thing. If we walk through life for any length of time at all, Think about how long you might be a part of this church. Assume this church is a good place for you. You never want to leave. And God has you here for 20 years. And say, he does the same with me. That means we're going to see each other more often than we probably see our own parents. We're going to walk through life together. We're going to struggle together. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to argue. And I will upset you. I will offend you. And sometimes it'll just be your fault. Most of the time it'll be my fault. All of the time it'll be some combination. But this is the guarantee, isn't it? Is that if we walk through life together for any amount of time, any length of time, there's going to be brokenness. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to upset each other. And if there isn't forgiveness covering our relationships with each other, then what hope do we have? What hope do our relationships, our friendships, not to mention our marriages, what, what hope do they have if forgiveness isn't just covering? Those. And so we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our relationships are to be soaked in forgiveness if they stand a chance of lasting. Then Jesus comes to this last clause. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now up to this point, we pray for God to meet our daily needs and for our relational health, for forgiveness and for the grace to forgive. If that's where we stopped, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, amen. If that's where we stopped, then this prayer would be very similar to a lot of pop psychology today that tells us that the secret to relational health is to just be a big enough person that when somebody else wounds you or hurts you, you're able to say, look, don't worry about it, it's all good. Jesus knows it's not all good. It's not simply a matter of shrugging it off. Why? Because there's stuff inside 
that fuels, that motivates, that drives, that gives us the ambition and the passion and the zeal to hurt each other. And that's the stuff that Jesus ends this prayer saying, don't stop until you ask the Lord to slice you open and spill out your guts, spiritually speaking. That's what he does. Lead us not into temptation. It's a logical thing to follow the prayer for forgiveness. A pastor friend of mine, Dan Doriani, said that the man or woman who is free from the guilt of sin, the forgiveness, also then wants relief from its tyranny. In other words, I don't just want the corruption in me to be forgiven, but I want its power over me to be broken too. I want it to be less, and I want it to be less. And so we pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this means struggle. It may raise the question in your mind, and it's a fair question and a good question. Wait, does this mean that it's possible for God to lead us into temptation? If we're praying for him not to, does that mean that he might? And it's a little bit of a nuanced thing, isn't it? Because James is really clear. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But the thing is, is that while he doesn't tempt us to sin, he does test us. He does introduce hardships into our lives, seasons of struggle. He doesn't do it so that God might be able to then stand back and take a look at us and see what we're made of. He already knows what we're made of. But he does it so that we might have some insight into the stuff that we're made of. And so he uses struggle in our lives, times of trial and testing, to strengthen us. But those are also times when we are susceptible in powerful ways to temptation. And it may also raise the question, well, if that's the case, why doesn't God just do away with trial and testing altogether? If it, if it leads us to temptation, if it leads us to be susceptible to sin, and I could be being just overly simple here, but I, I think that the answer to that question is kind of self-evident when we think about our own lives. I mean, if you think about the areas in your life where you have learned the things that you say, I so needed to learn that lesson about faith, about relationships, about yourself, about the meaning of life. How many of those life lessons came without struggle? Probably not many of them, you know? When it's 72 and sunny and cloudy and all your bills are paid and everything's fine, our antenna isn't always up at that point to really be learning the stuff of who we are and who God is. So God uses struggle. Jesus talks about it. He paints this picture. Talking to his disciples, he said of struggle, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. And so Jesus isn't teaching us here to pray against struggle. You're going to have struggle. You're going to suffer. But instead... Jesus is teaching us to pray that 
in our struggles, that those struggles would bring healing and growth and not brokenness and ruin in our lives. This prayer is about so much more than just modifying behavior and stopping certain behaviors and and, and doing other things. It's about what motivates us, what's inside of us, what drives us, what we follow after. And then Jesus ends by saying, deliver us from evil. Deliver us. And there's drama in that, if you think about it. Another word for deliver is rescue. He's saying it's right for you when you're praying to the Father to conclude by saying, save me, rescue me from evil. In in this prayer, rescue me, you also find in Scripture a curious thing. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, you find commands to the believer to flee from evil. So on the one hand, we're saying, God, rescue me from evil, deliver me from evil. On the other hand, Paul is saying, yeah, run from it, run from it. So which is it? Are those two contradictory? They're not. But they point out something that is important for us when we take our application from this and we ask the question, how exactly does God rescue us from evil? If we're going to ask him to do this, it's a prayer of faith. It's believing that God can and will and he has the power and the authority and the insight and the wisdom to rescue us from evil. How does he do it? Sometimes he does it through miraculous means. Sometimes you'll be going along And God will just intervene in a way that's hard to explain. He will turn your course in a direction you did not think you should go, and you will find out later, wow, he rescued me. He saved me from something bad. Sometimes it's a premonition, right? Just a gut feeling, I am not supposed to walk through that door, and I'm not going to, or I should not turn down this street. Sometimes God intervenes in miraculous ways to deliver us from evil. Sometimes. But most of the time, it's very ordinary. The way that he rescues us. Very common. Part of being delivered from temptation comes through a thoughtful interrogation of our own hearts into how we approach temptation in the first place. Have you ever thought about that? The prevailing struggles, shortcomings, sins, if you want to use that word in your life. Have you ever thought about what are the mechanics of that? When does this start? When does it really gain momentum? And then when is it really just too late to turn back for me? What is that process for you? There's a philosopher, Iris Murdoch, who made this statement, and I think it's so wise. At the crucial moments of decision, most of the business of choosing is already over. At the crucial moments of decision, most of the business of choosing is already over. When are you most likely? Twelve steppers. In a room this size, there's got to be a bunch of us, right? Right? We have an acronym, HALT, 
H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Beware when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired. Some add the word stressed at the end. Those five things, if those, any of those things are going on in your life, your temptation is going to be a lot higher. Understand that about yourself. God gives us ordinary things to rescue us. I want to name three of them as we close and to move back into a time of singing in response. The first ordinary means of rescue that God gives us is he gives us his word. He gives us the Bible, scripture, this book that teaches us who God is. It teaches us who we are. It traces our story through time and space. It's filled with moral and spiritual insight and counsel and boundaries for us. One of the primary ways God delivers his people from evil is through the counsel and the instruction of his word. So take and read. There's help. There's help there. There's rescue there. The other thing he gives us, number two of the three, is he gives us prayer, which we've been studying here, which is an amazing thing. That the God of all creation says, you have an audience with me. I listen to you. I know what you need. I want to help you. I answer your prayers. So pray. Now let me just stop and tell you what I just did there. First Sunday, I'm getting to the part where I'm landing the plane, you know, and I'm bringing the application And what did I say you need to do? Read your Bible and pray. I mean, it's not very original. But I'm not trying to be original. It's what God gives us. There's a reason why we come back to these things. Because God, through his word, is speaking to us. And we, through prayer, are speaking to him. And that's a relationship. And our relationship with him is the one we were made for from the foundation of the world. And when that relationship is being put right, everything else is being put right. So Bible study and prayer. And then last, we have community. Relationships with each other. People to walk through life with. My friend sat in that chair and told us the story of his childhood not because he was trying to one-up the last person's story, not because he thought it would make us like him more, but because he wanted to be transparent with us. He wanted to be in a relationship with this group where he was being challenged and he was being stretched, and he knew, if I am not known by these people, they won't know how to come after me. They won't know how to get at me. He's one of those guys that would apologize for everything. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we just say, you don't have to, you haven't done anything. You don't have to apologize. But then he puts it in the context of, yes, but I've been raised with an enormous amount of guilt. Guilt drives me. And if you want to know me, and if you want to walk with me, you need to know that part of my story. You need to be able to search me in that way. God calls us to walk through life together with other people. It's why a small group ministry at a church like this 
is not so you can go back home at the end of the day and do double duty on the sermon and just mine more knowledge out of it. It's great if that happens, but the function of small groups and community is so that you might find that you have fewer and fewer places to hide over time, that you have friends who know by the sound of your voice and the look in your eyes if you're okay or not, who know what question to ask you when you're just kind of over the top fine, how to get through it, and how to say, really though, what's going on? Those people in your life are a gift from God, people who know your tendencies, your failings, your hopes, the tone of your voice, people who hold up the light of truth for you and will not let you out through an escape hatch. These people are rare. And God says, pursue these kinds of relationship. God rescues us from evil through friends like this who oppose us when we're wrong. Friends who will come and say to us, I benefit from you because you have told me some things that are so right and so true. Friends who will walk with us when we feel alone. Friends who will run after us and chase us down when we want to run away. Friends who will observe our habits and tell us what they see. It takes time. You've got to walk through a relationship to get there, don't you? I have a friend who says, I want to tell you something I observe in you, a pattern of behavior. I want to shine some light on you. That's good. That's a good thing. It's a safe place. There's a proverb that says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. The Bible is beautiful. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. To have people in our lives who remember the anniversaries of our tragedies and our victories through vigil and through celebration. The core of everything that we're getting at in this last message on this series on the Lord's Prayer and in this whole series on the Lord's Prayer is that God delivers us from evil by shining the light of truth into the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. He's all about it getting to the bottom, to the root, to the, to the cause of why we do what we do, far beyond sin management and behavior modification. This prayer that Jesus models for us is a prayer to know and be known by God. And so I want to ask you a question to take home with you. Let it roll around in your head this week. What do you fear God will bring to light? And then the second question. What are the ordinary means in your life by which he will? And then I want to challenge you. Read up on that part of you in Scripture. The Bible's not silent on anxiety, on lust, on laziness, on fear, on guilt. Read up. And pray, Bible study and prayer. And then tell somebody. And do it before next week. That's the challenge I want to leave you with. 
But I want to remind you of something. God is committed to your ongoing restoration. He's for you in this. Jesus says, when you talk to God, you know, when you're getting ready to say amen, say, rescue me. And brothers and sisters, most of the time, it's through pretty ordinary means. Thank God. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that your word is not some cryptic message written for an ancient and long dead audience that we're just trying to pour over and crack some code to understand something about you, but that you've given us your word so that we might understand, so that we might know you, so that you might work through it to reveal yourself to us. You're not trying to be distant. You're not trying to be cryptic. You're not trying to be cagey. But you are calling us into relationship with yourself, into intimacy with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would search us, look into our hearts, see if there's any offensive way in us, as David prayed, and lead us in the way everlasting. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the confidence in you to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of rescue that you send on a regular basis. We thank you that you have not left us alone. And we thank you that the gospel is true and that you are for our restoration. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory that we sing. Amen.